Jesus, we thank you and praise you. We know that each one of us right now, that if we have stepped into a relationship with you, there were these moments in our life where you spoke the words of the gospel in a way that we could hear, in a way that we received love that we didn't know was possible, and in a way that we received grace and forgiveness in ways that that we didn't realize how life-changing it could be for us, God. And you found a way not only to give your love, not only a way to show your love, not only a way to restore us, but a way to communicate it in a way that we could hear it. And um, that's that's something that is beyond our ability to comprehend, but it is not beyond our ability to, to be grateful for. And so we thank you for your love. We thank you that you do not judge us according to the justice that we deserve. We thank you, God, for your grace toward us. We thank you, God. I I thank you, God, that I do not get what I deserve. Thank you for that. In the name of Jesus, amen. You can have a seat. Thanks. Hey, everybody. time is it okay um i'm gonna ask you to pray for me for a second because this is one of those ones that there is a lot in this text and there's a lot that surrounds this text and i'd like us to hear what the lord would have us hear um and no more and no less um and so uh I've done a lot of studying and thinking around this uh, passage, but I just want to ask together that the Lord would say what he wants to say rather than me saying what I want to say, you know, Uh, because I just, this is fun passage, I think, and I don't want that to be a distraction in this from what the Lord wants. So can we uh, go back into a time of prayer and would you just, let's be quiet for uh, just a second here and that we would invite the Lord to speak to us each individually and then that um, you would also ask um, that God would, Help me on that level to speak only what he wants this morning. Let's pray. Amen. Amen. School's kicking off. It's about to happen. All the kids just left. If if I had said that while they were in here, there would have been like weeping and wailing. (laughs) It's gnashing of teeth. It would have been like outer Gehenna in here. Yeah, people would have been, ah, no. One of the big questions in our home is, uh, and and I help, um, I'm assistant coach on each of my boys' Uh, soccer teams and one of the questions you hear them all asking each other is so who'd you get you know they're wondering who their teacher is of course and there's I'm sure a number of different reasons why they're wondering who their teacher is Um, the biggest reason is because they want to figure out which friends are in their class you know and uh, and I'm like we only want to mess around with them anyway so Uh, but the other reason is because they have kind of their they they want to know if they're jiving with this teacher 
who they're going to have. And, you know, each teacher is kind of known by their, the atmosphere of their class. And they have different, different teachers have different rules for their class or they have their personalities come through and how they teach. And you see and learn a lot about a teacher probably just by sitting in their classroom and understanding how it works. And some personalities work well with other personalities. So some teachers and some kids really connect with one another and other teachers and other kids don't connect as well and all of that. Um, If you think in your mind about a category of a relationship, it might be a teacher and a student. It might be a parent. If you think of just the category in your mind of parent or of child or of boss or of friend. And if you think of those categories and, and someone asked you to define what that category is and how you would define that relationship, you would have some thoughts that are generic thoughts in your mind about each of those kinds of relationships. But if you probed a little deeper, you would start, we would start to each realize that much of our definition of what those things are is based on the experience of individuals who have filled those roles in our lives. And there's this moment where I, before being a dad, had in my mind the image of what it was like to be a dad or what it was like to have a child. But then there was a moment where there was a name. And the name was Evan. And all of a sudden, everything I knew about a child started to fill up with all sorts of other information that I would have never had before, both positive and negative information, and also details, just all sorts of details about that. In the, in the first six verses of Psalm 19, we understand that the heavens declare the glory of God. The Hebrew word for God is El. It's just a generic word. Very, very generic word. It's like you say teacher and you say God. It's not a personal name. It's a general name. It says when you look around at nature, you can understand there is a God. There is a maker. And your homework, and I hope you were able to engage your homework, was to go get out in nature and experience that. I know I heard feedback from a number of you that actually did that. I got a text message early in the week about a a beautiful piece of scenery and said like homework right now bing you know and I uh, got some comical things that people saw in nature and that revealed I would say the humor of God as well and I, I think that's awesome we were experiencing the Lord as we go out not just to experience nature for the beauty of it to, but to know that there is God behind that and to learn about God L God and so you know like El Shaddai, you know, that's God, that's a a modifier of the word God. In this text, once you get to verse 7, it switches. The whole poetry switches. It switches from being the, the chiastic structure of the first six. Remember we talked about the whole like pyramid structure of the first six verses. And then it shifts and the whole structure of the poem shifts. Everything about it shifts. And what's happening is, is God is more fully helping us understand not just the category of God in our head, but he is filling up the category of God with the person of God with the very person and the personality of God. Let me show you what I mean. In verse 7, 
This is where we step into our text for today. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. Who is God referred to as here? What's that? The Lord. Yes, I heard it specifically here. Capital letters, lowercase letters. Capital letters. And what's that mean? Personal name. This is personal name. So Yahweh or Jehovah. That's the personal name for God. Notice before this, it hasn't said that. The heavens declare the glory not of Yahweh, but of God, of El. So when you look at nature, you can know that there is a God. When you look at the law that's written here, you can learn about Yahweh. Okay? You can learn about the specific God. Now, there isn't more than one God. But we can have a category of God in our head, which doesn't tell us about the personality necessarily of this specific God. But now that we get to this part of the text, we start to see, oh, he just got named for us. So I'm going to read down through it. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts, and I... The reason it says the Lord instead of Yahweh is because that's a way of honoring God by keeping his name reverent and holy. You know, um, the, the fact that we say Jehovah or Yahweh in our day and age is actually stepping on some like, eh, we're stepping out there when we say that. Because even in our English translation, it doesn't get translated Yahweh, it gets translated L-O-R-D out of reverence for the name of God. That's not just a Jewish thing. That's the history of the church. So when we say Jehovah and when we say Yahweh, we are using the very personal name of God and it should be used with immense reverence. Immense reverence. And what he's saying here is that the law of Yahweh is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of Jehovah is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of Yahweh are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of Yahweh are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold. Sweeter also than honey. And drippings from the honeycomb. I love that picture. Drippings from the honeycomb. Just picture like sitting under the honeycomb with your tongue out, waiting for stuff to drip off of there. Moreover, by them is your servant warned. In keeping them, there is great reward. That's our text for today is in these verses where we start to learn more specific things about God. Each section of Psalm 19 reveals a greater level of who God is. And it starts like this. We understand there's a maker. Boom. Everyone is supposed to be able to know that by looking at nature that we are made. Inside of that, when you read from the author who he is, we start to understand specifically who that God is and his name is Yahweh. And next week, we'll understand that there's a bullseye right in the middle that helps us understand even more specifically who God is. But first, we have to have the category in our mind that says 
maker. Secondly, we get in our in in relationship with God through reading, through reading, we start to understand who that maker is. And it really is about reading. The law of the Lord here um, is general. This is general law. This is about the moral law of God. This is about the authoritative word right here. It's not just that mosaic law, you know, of all the specifics. Like if you're going to eat this, don't eat the kind that has hooves like this. Eat the kind that has hooves like that. If you go back and read Leviticus and Numbers, you know, you're going to get all these interesting details about the mosaic law. That's not primarily what David is referring to here. The law of the Lord is perfect. This is the authoritative word of God. It is the principles that underlie who God is, and it's the specific instructions that he gives to those who walk within his creation. And so if we want to understand this God, then we look and say, what has he written to describe this world to us? I'm looking and I'm in awe and I'm in wonder and I'm worshiping the fact that there's a God. How in the world do I get to know this God and walk alongside and with the way this was all created? Well, thank goodness he gives us the word. And that's how we get to know him more specifically is in the word. And in the word, he gives us the doctrines of who he is the principles of his kingdom and his nature, and then the instructions as far as how to walk inside of that. Okay, and that is, that is what it means for us to walk in the authority, to know him more specifically. So in other words, I want to know what kind of God is this. So when my kids are saying, who do you have this year as a teacher? They're, in their mind, there's different kinds of teachers, And they want to know what kind of teacher they're working with, right? And in the general category of God, there's all sorts of ideas about what God could be or should be or might be. There might be a maniacal God who's vindictive and who's angry. There might be a softy God who's really nice to me but doesn't carry much power. There's all sorts of things that could fill up that category in my mind. But God gives us very clear, specific self-revelation of who he is. And that is found in the Bible. And when we want to know God, we have to get in nature and experience that there is a God. But if we want to know him more specifically, we must know the Bible. We got to know it. We got to know it. We got to know that word. It's really important that we know it. And so he's the author of the big story. In theological terms, this is called the meta-narrative. We each have stories in our lives. We each have a narrative. We are part of a story that's working itself out. But then there's one big grand story that we all fit into. And of course, that starts with the maker. He's not only the one who made it all, but he's the one who wrote the story and all the details of it. That's called the meta-narrative, the big story. So the big story is written by the author. So we not only know the maker, We know the one who wrote the story. And we want to walk inside of that story. And you know how if you read a number of books by an author, you can start to kind of get a feel for that author? Almost that if you went then and didn't know it was that author and you read a paragraph of one of their books, you might be like, this sounds like so-and-so. 
That's the way it is when we begin to understand the scriptures and when we begin to have a relationship with God through the scriptures. It's a very different kind of reading than any other reading we do when we read the scriptures. And when we seek the scriptures to understand how the maker would define my life, I understand that these writings are very different and they communicate with my spirit, not just with my head. And they do something very different and so he asks us to engage in that. All right, now his specific instructions start to, he, he not only gives the doctrines, but he gives instructions for my relationships, for my money, for my consumption, for all the different things in my life that, that I engage in, my thought life, my time, how I spend my time, my speech patterns, all of those things are written about in this scripture and they reveal things about God. They reveal things about who he is. All right, now, Here's the weird thing for me, all right? I hardly ever do a PowerPoint. Um, I used to do PowerPoints every week, and then I, I stopped doing it. This time, I had this really weird, this is so cheesy, so just grace, 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 okay? This is, somebody start whistling the theme song to Jeopardy for me, please. Seriously. Yeah! Okay, enough, stop. <laughs> when I was looking through Psalm uh, 19, 7 through 11, I saw this in terms of Jeopardy questions. I don't know why, but so, uh, like, look at uh, verse 7. I saw it like, this hidden treasure is perfect and revives the soul. What would the question be? What is the law? Okay, that's how I saw it. Now I'm just going to give, I, I'm not going to painfully make us go through this whole thing. So I'm just going to do one slide that covers it all. Okay, so you're on the game show and you say, Alex, I'll have hidden treasures for 800, please. Okay, and then, <laughs> and then, he says, these hidden treasures are known to revive souls, cause deep joy, give spiritual wisdom and insight, and provide unmatched protection. Let me read the question, or let me read the answer for you one more time. These hidden treasures are known to revive souls, to cause deep joy, to give spiritual wisdom and insight, and to provide unmatched protection. Beep, beep, beep. <laughs> What are the rules, commandments, precepts, fear, I should say, and testimony and law of the Lord? I don't know about you, if I was on that game show and somebody said, what causes joy? Rejoicing causes deep spiritual insight, gives you wealth and wisdom and insight. The first thing that I would think of is not rules, commandments, fear, precepts, and laws. That's not what I would think of when someone says, there's a hidden treasure that causes you great joy. Oh, it must be fear and laws and rules. And yet that's clearly what this passage says. It's clearly what it says. Now, what I wanted to do, and I don't think that um, I'm supposed to do today, um, so this becomes homework 
for us, is I wanted to break down each one of these things and nuance them and show what's in there in the nuance. So what's the difference between a precept and a rule and a commandment and a law and what are the things that are offered with each of them and break them down, kind of like you uh, might do, someone might do with the, the, the Beatitudes. Mike preached on the Beatitudes before and you might be looking at each one and say, what is, what is this one or what is that one? And I, I wanted to do that with this and I'll just give a quick uh, overview of that to get you started. If you're taking notes, this can help you get started on your homework um, for it uh, for this week. But what I would like us to do for our homework this week is to read through these verses, verse 7 to 11. And uh, each day in our time of uh, walking with the Lord in the scriptures, read through these things and identify what it is that you would like the Lord to speak to, to reveal to you from these things, okay? So um, let's look at them for a second here. Let's look at each one. The law, and I'm not doing anything with the PowerPoint on this one. So um, you can walk down through the text. The law, again, this is the moral law, not the Mosaic law. It says the law is perfect. That means that it's without blemish at all, that there is, it is untainted, it is unblemished. Am I perfect? No. Good answer. (laughs) I am not perfect. Thank you. This should be a resounding, like, you guys know me enough to all be able to, you were all being very kind. You're like, you have no idea how not perfect you are. And no, not perfect. But the law remains perfect. And if I want my soul revived, there is something about that perfect law that can bring revival to my soul. It's an awesome thing. It's an awesome thing. Okay? Secondly, the testimony. The testimony here, this is a cool one. Normally when we think about testimony, we think in terms of I, this is what someone has done. I can testify to what someone has done this. I testify to that. But the testimony in the Old Testament is about the Ten Commandments. The testimony refers to the Ten Commandments. The testimony of God is the Ten Commandments. You would think that'd be down in commandments, but it's not. Testimony is the thing. It says in the Ark of the Covenant was the testimony of God. Those are the Ten Commandments. And they're right next to a budding staff and right next to a cup of manna. All these things that God has done for the Israelites are next to these Ten Commandments that are the testimony of God. Those commandments testify to who God is. And this is what it's, we're told about the testimony. It says the testimony of the Lord is sure. And sure it here it has the idea of like a warranty. Like, you know, when you buy something and you know, this is a sure bet because there's a warranty on it, a five-year warranty on it. I had an LED light bulb that was bought two years ago that stopped working in my house. I took it back to Lowe's this week because it had a five-year warranty on it. They gave me a new one. Two years old, a light bulb just burns out, and they give me a new one because there's a warranty on it. It's sure. The testimony of the Lord, the Ten Commandments, there is a warranty on those things, and they are sure. They, they, you can cash in on the Ten Commandments, and what they do is give you wisdom. They give you massive wisdom. All right, the precepts of the Lord. The precepts of the Lord are his instructions. This is like an, literally like an instruction manual that comes along with something. This is how it works. 
Okay, precepts are how things are supposed to work. So when I read the Bible looking for how it works, it says the precepts of the Lord are right. And that word right, what it literally is tr- means is straight. It means that they, they are straight. They don't waver here and there, which is why they cause rejoicing. When things go exactly the way they're supposed to go, that should bring rejoicing. Right? And that's, it's saying that the, when the precepts, the principles of God are straight, they work, find them, and find rejoicing. The commandments, okay? Now, these are orders. These are directives. Think of like a commander saying, this is what I want you to do. These are authoritative instructions. And it says they are pure. That means they're undiluted. And what that means is I get a singular vision, Okay? So what happens to me is that I have, I have wisdom now and I have clarity. My spiritual eyes are enlightened because I am looking right here. I don't have to think about this or think about that. I don't have to get all over the place because God said, do this. And that's all I have to worry about. Which is built on the next one, which is that the fear of the Lord, which is the authority of God, is clean. And this word here, clean, means ceremonial, ceremonially clean, which is like when you go to enter the temple and you have to wash your hands so that you're clean. That's what this is saying about the, uh, the fear of the Lord. When we fear God, there is a cleanliness that results and that endures forever. I'd, like to, I'd really like to go into each one of these more, but we can't right now. Here's the last one. The rules of the Lord. These rules, you would think of this again as the Ten Commandments, like this is how God tells me to live my life. That's not what this means. The rules are the rulings or the judgments of God, how God rules about this situation. What is his ruling about this? And so God's ruling in the situation, in any situation, is trustworthy. It is true. It is faithful. In other words, it shows us the reality that we are so prone to miss. In any situation, I want to make a judgment about that situation. God's judgment, God's ruling is based on reality. My ruling tends to not be based on reality. If I want the trustworthy reality, then I'm leaning into God's ruling in the situation, not into my ruling. And that has a righteousness that endures forever. Okay? That's the, that was all that was a primer for your homework. Okay, so you can, seriously, take that, study those. Now, um, there's one other thing that I want to do today. Um, and uh, that's just this. You gotta, you gotta, we got to see verse 11. This is um, what I believe to be the most important verse in, the, um, in this text. It says, moreover, by them is your servant warned. I can be warned from evil that will assail me by all of these things. In keeping them, there is great reward. If I want to know God personally, if I want to know Yahweh, not just the category of God in my head, here's the interesting thing about the law, the precepts, the commands, all of those things that the Lord gives me. I can't know them just by studying them. They do give me a doctrine of God, but I don't know them unless I experience them, and I can't experience them unless I submit to them. 
And so the law of the Lord is only activated in my life. And I only get the rejoicing that comes from that. The way that I get the wisdom that comes from the testimonies and the revival that comes from the law is when I actually keep it. If I don't keep it, then I don't get to experience it. That's what happens. So what happens with God is, is that he's constantly wanting to Miyagi me. You know what Miyagi as a verb means, right? And that's that, that's that moment where anyone who's seen Karate Kid knows the moment where there was Miyagi saying, sand the floor, sand the floor, sand the floor. And Danielson is always like, what in the world? All I do is sand floor. You're supposed to be teaching me karate. And then, Dan, and then Miyagi goes to kick him the one day and he goes, wham, and blocks the kick. Wow, I just got taken to school. I had no idea what I was learning that whole time. The law will bring revival to our lives when we submit to it. And over time, as we read the word of God and submit to it, as we trust God's judgments instead of my own, as I listen to his insights instead of just thinking on my own, but if I put my trust in what the words of the author actually says for my life, in time, as I trust that and obey that and submit to that, I will find that I grew in ways that I didn't even know was possible for me because it wasn't me it was him and his wisdom is working itself out in me his principles that he designed me with are starting to work themselves out the way I was designed to live but we have to actually submit to it and so you know as a as a as a kid who's like trying to listen to mom and dad and obey mom and dad yeah, maybe mom and dad know what's best or whatever, but I want this. And mom and dad don't care about me being happy. They only care about what they want for their life. But a parent who actually loves their child, who's asking them to think or do things in a way that that child wouldn't naturally do, the only way that that child is ever going to get to fully experience how loving their parent actually is and how wise their parent actually is, is by trusting it. Because you discover it once you've walked it out. I mean, yeah, you can look back and say, it probably would have gone better if I had done it that way. But you don't get to actually experience the beauty of it unless you submit to it and obey it. And this is the way it is with the Lord, with Yahweh. He reveals himself and he reveals his story, but it doesn't get activated in our lives unless we submit to it and obey it, right? Okay, here's the problem. Here's the problem. The problem is that my theology and my sin make it very difficult for me to obey God. Now, we are going to fly through some review here, okay? Um, And this is review that helps us understand how to read this text. If you want to understand more about these two diagrams that I'm about to show to you, there's, uh, I've preached every two years, apparently. I'm in a pattern of showing these diagrams every two years. I went back and looked to see when I actually preached about these because I want you to be able to look at them if you want to go back and understand them more. So in 2014, we preached a message on freedom, life the way it was meant to be. And in that, there's a message called the glorious life um, or the graceful life. And these diagrams are in there. And then secondarily, we have uh, paintings that are out on this wall um, that are about the ancient future practices of God. Another message I preached in two th- or series I preached in 2012. The message on ordinances 
develops theologically what these are about. Here. Okay, significance. Significance is my boys have a soccer tournament later this afternoon. They had one yesterday and they have one later this afternoon. What significance is in my life is how many goals I put in the back of the net or how many stops I have. It says, my team wants to go here. What do I contribute to the team? What the world tries to tell us all the time is how good I am or what I bring to the table is what my significance is, my contribution to the world. What we have a tendency to hear from the world is what we bring to the table is what makes us legitimate. Okay? However effective I am at bringing something valuable to the table, that is how legitimate of a human being I am. So what ends up happening is, is I begin to form my identity based on what it is that I contribute. So you're the funny person, you're the beautiful person, you're the witty person, the insightful person, you're the kind person, the helpful person, whatever. I learn who I am based on what it is that I contribute. That's what the world tells us. Here's the problem with that, is that we are basing our legitimacy next to what everyone else contributes. Okay? This is what happens when we do that. There's, you get translate that into the religious world and the law, and what ends up happening is God has a law for me, but I have a hard time. I want to contribute to God. My theology says I want to contribute to God and do what I want to be a good son and do what God tells me to do. But the problem is I mess up. I self-indulge. I don't trust the law. I don't trust the precepts. I don't do what God wants me to do, and I mess up, and then I end up not liking myself because I'm not contributing well. So then I go run out and do something to self-medicate and get addicted to something that helps me feel better about myself. And then I self-loathe more. And then I have this moment right here where I have to stop and self-evaluate. And I say, this isn't working anymore. God told me to obey the law. He showed me how the world works. He showed me what he wants from me. I've been trying really hard to obey God. And I feel like if I can contribute to God and do what it is that I'm supposed to do, that I'm a legitimate child of God. And then I can feel good about myself. And I keep trying to obey him. But every time I try, I fail. And when I fail, I feel bad. And then I end up doing other dumb things because I feel bad. But then every now and then we take inventory and we stop and we look and we evaluate. All of the religions of the world make their living right here, including a big chunk of Christianity. Makes its, its whole thing, its whole pitch right here. After we self-evaluate and realize it's not working well, what do we do? We self-improve. And we work hard to do better. And when we finally do something and improve our lives, we get our spiritual disciplines working, we start to feel pretty good about ourselves. And pride comes before the fall and we self-indulge again. And it's the big cycle of self-reliance. There is one answer to this whole thing that is different in a relationship with Jesus Christ. And it sits right here and you're not going to be able to see it. <laughs> Turn around and look at the back, the one I'm looking at right there. See it? It says, confession and grace. 
There's a moment when we self-evaluate, when we take inventory of our lives and we look and we say, I am trying so hard to do what God's told me to do and it's not working out and this whole thing doesn't work. And in that moment, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. This is the beautiful moment that all of our faith is built on. Grace of God. It's the grace of God. When that happens, we understand something. This is, this is one of the, it's just a spectacular quote I think we should all memorize. Grace is not opposed to effort. It is opposed to earning. Earning is an attitude. Effort is an action. Think about this. Typically, this is why our theology keeps us from experiencing sometimes the beauty of God through the law. Because I think that grace says it's all on God. So therefore, my job as a Christian might be to kick back and let God do the work. But that is me not making an effort. And then I have to wrestle with what James says, faith without works is dead. And I have to wrestle with what Paul says in Romans 6, should we that are dead to sin live any longer therein? No, I shouldn't. This is what, this is what happens in our head. Is we think if grace is the key, to my spiritual life, then I can't effort anything or else I'm doing this myself. But that's not the case. This is, let me give you a little more example here. If we understand the goodness of God, then we understand that even if he already loves me and he already validates me and I can't contribute anything to God, I still understand this. You know who Billy Sunday is? He's a great revival speaker. And this is what he said about Jesus. He said, What has Jesus Christ ever asked you to do that wasn't for your own good? I'm not trying to prove something to God. I'm just trying to follow the roadmap for my life to go well. God loves me. It doesn't make me any better that I do things right or do things wrong. Grace takes the carpet, takes the rug out from under earning. I can't earn God's favor. I can't earn identity. I can't earn a status in God's eyes. But what I can do is I can say, God has loved me and God designed me. So therefore, I'm going to trust God instead of trust in my own way. And when I do, things are going to go better. And so it looks like this. I understand that I am a child of God, not because of what I've done, but because of what he's done. And if I am a child of God, then instead of trying to go, go my own way, What legitimizes my faith is the moment where it goes from just being some doctrine about salvation to actually saying, you know what? If I am loved by him and he's my maker, then why don't I actually trust him in this one? And when I do, I end up actually bringing value to the table because love and joy and peace and all sorts of things start to come out of my life as I walk in his way. And then all the collateral things, all those things, that the law of the Lord is perfect and it brings revival. It brings joy. It brings wisdom. It brings all those stuff. When I say, you are God and you love me, I don't have to be in charge. You have this. All right. We got to close. And I want to sing something together. Okay? This isn't what Corey planned. Um, this is, this, we're just going to do this together. Our entire faith is based on that moment 
where we realize I can't obey the law. I can't follow his precepts. I can't do any of that stuff, and it's not working. And then in that moment, I can choose to try to be L, try to be God and self-improve, or I can say, I need help. And when I say I need help, then he says, I got you. I've forgiven you. Don't worry about it. Now let me walk with you and show you the way that I have for you. And I begin to trust him. And that is the moment of grace. And there's this moment, or there's this song that every one of us knows because it is probably the definitional song in modern day Christian faith. What is it? Amazing grace. Okay. And I just think that there's this moment for us to recognize that if we want to experience how awesome God is in the law, And we want to like answer that Jeopardy question with joy and be like, I want to know the joy of the Lord by following the law. I want to know the wisdom of God by submitting to his precepts. I want to study the word of God and understand it and follow it. But I'm not doing that to earn God's favor. I'm not doing that to self-improve. I'm doing it because he knows best and he loves me. That is based on our ability to proclaim together his amazing grace. Amen?